Hey, DER Task Force members, it's Russell Wilcox here, your editor and producer of the podcast. We're finally back after a long hiatus to tackle a newly released net metering update from the California PUC, NEM 3.0. The time is now for comments and feedback on the significant update to support the solar and broad DER market in California before this ruling is set in stone. Let's start it off as usual with a quote from Duncan. The idea of baseload power is already outdated. I think you should look at this the other way around. From a consumer's point of view, baseload is what I am producing myself. The solar on my rooftop, my heat pump, that's the baseload. Those are the electrons that are free at the margin. The point is, this is an industry that was based on meeting demand. An extraordinary amount of capital was tied up for an unusual set of circumstances to ensure supply at any moment. This is now turned on its head. The future will be much more driven by availability of supply, by demand side response and management, which will enable the market to balance price of supply and demand. It's how we balance these things that will determine the future shape of our business. Who do you think that was? Well, that's a clue at the end there. Our business. Otherwise, I was going to say like Chris Clack or Saul Griffith or something. Some Yeah, or like Alison Clements or something. No, your your clue... This good deductive reasoning. Stay on that track. I'm going to, I mean, I'm just going to guess Sunrun because I feel like they have a lot of feelings about this. It could be like a Vistra or NRG, but they don't really care about this stuff. But I'd think it'd be like a big energy company, maybe like Nextera or a CCA in California. This was in September of 2015. I remember Mm. reading this article and it making me go like, whoa. Uh, the CEO of National Grid, uh, oh, Steve Holiday, talking about how, you know, they're, because, you know, they're, they're utility all over the place, talking about how their business is going to be changed by, you know, people meeting part of their needs first on their own. Um, but yeah, I remember this coming out when I was just sort of like starting to form my thoughts on DERs and stuff and new to the space and just being like, what? How's not, how's not Grid's performance been since then? <laughs> I don't know, actually. That's a good question. He's still the CEO, so um, the board is happy with him. I mean, I don't know. There's such a big company and all over the place. It's probably hard right. to say. They have so many like, yeah. different approaches based on the regulation of the state or country that they're in. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know where the, where the utility in Massachusetts is. It's a good place to do ER projects. So that's that true. anything. I think it's mainly Eversource, though. Is that not? I always forget. They're, not grid like, and Eversource are like half and half in Massachusetts. Right. They're like so steps of Yeah. Anyways, that's a good quote. Yeah. See, utilities trying to do things, guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so today we want to get into a, a relevant topic, which is net metering. Um, we're going to try to review what net metering is generally, but then specifically. There's a uh, controversial uh, potential new ruling for net metering called NEM3 in California that has our industry up in arms, utilities up in arms, everybody's fighting about it. It's one of the bigger things to happen in in electricity policy. Uh, I'd say probably since FERC 222 when it comes to DERs. Uh, so we wanted to try to unpack it for everybody, give give our take and, you know, think about 
broadly what's what's going on here and you know how we deal with this you know at the larger scale not just case by case so i uh i want to start by just talking really quickly about what net metering is but first we need to go over uh we have a word from our sponsor for today's episode um today's sponsor is the first energy corporation of ohio and you know they reached out to der task force and they wanted to get in touch with our community to let you know that like they're sorry about that whole bribery thing. It's not as bad as it looked, uh, but you know, they felt bad about it. So they paid the $230 million fine. And to show our community how much they care, if you go to firstenergycorp.com right now and sign up with referral code lesson learned, you'll get $10 off your energy bill. That's like taking your kid out to the movies, you know, doing something with your spouse buying a drink for your favorite energy regulator, you know, whatever you want, you know, just, just go to the website, lesson learned $10 off your energy bill. Uh, First energy, Ohio's favorite utility company. They're good guys over there. You know, I had some shiner box with them, you know, they seem like you can buy multiple shiner box for $10. (laughs) Yeah. I took them out to a really nice steak dinner and, and, and we paid and there was no, you know, there was no kind of quid pro quo. I promise. (laughs) <laughs> but so good dudes we're, overall we're legit now we're sponsored you know we're raking it in um so anyway with that back to our back to our that just bro- broke this morning right no no i just sent you that as a refresher that's old news um that's from like a while ago um so <laughs> so um what is what is net metering generally i mean we've talked about this before right but super high level you know, if you have solar on your house, it's very unlikely you're using all of your solar exactly when you produce it. A lot of the times you're probably pushing some of that back to the grid and the grid and your utility needs to have some means of, you know, compensating you for that, right? It, they're, they're not, it's not going to be free. They're not going to just take the power and give you nothing. Um, early in the days of solar, they just say, okay, you give us a kilowatt hour, we'll take a kilowatt hour off your bill. Right. Pretty, pretty simple. Um, And it kind of made sense because there was so little solar on the grid. It was like, why get crazy about this? Let's just. And they didn't have like a good way of metering it. And so literally. Yeah, true. Back then. (laughs) The technology was like not really there to do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we we talk about um, uh, the, the original energy task force with their wind turbine, which was, you know, behind the meter and pushing back into the grid. You know, that was an old school meter that, you know, turned clockwise. And when they pushed back into the grid, it turned counterclockwise. And it was just like erasing the kilowatt hours off their bill. Um, so anyway, that's what net energy metering is. And basically ever since it's been a huge debate, right? Um, you know, because as more and more customers go solar, the, the bluntness of that tool becomes more and more evident, right? Um, imagine uh, the milkman comes to your house you buy milk for a, whatever, $2 a gallon. One day you give the milkman milk that you, you know, you don't need to use. And you say, I'd like $2 a gallon. He's like, what, why did I even drive out here? Right. Like you, there's in theory, you have to pay for these like system costs. Right. Um, so anyway, it's been a huge controversy. I have a, I have a good, good way to fix it. Okay. Um, I think we should mandate that everyone installs solar and then simultaneously erase net metering. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
I know I just jumped in your flow there, but I do think some context around why this matters, <laughs> what we're talking about today would be good. No, it, it definitely matters. And I think that's part of why the pressure's on, you know, the, the state California um, recently, recently being like maybe a year and a half ago, um, you know, made this new rule that all new construction, you know, unless, you know, it can't be done for some reason, uh, has to have rooftop solar on it. Um, and so I think that got everyone thinking about, okay, there's a future where there's a lot of rooftop solar, not just at the margins, but it's a big thing. And how do we deal with that? And I, I think that's what's interesting about this new MEM3 proceeding. It's brought up a lot of like fundamental disagreements mm -hmm. about how you deal with that because everyone's thinking big. No one's just thinking about little incremental things anymore, right? But let me first quickly just give some, some, some really fast context. So we talked about what original like OG net metering was. That's you know, NEM 1.0? Yeah. yeah, I guess they didn't call it 1.0 at the time, but yeah, it's just basic NEM. Then a few years ago in California, we got NEM 2.0, right? Which was basically, you know, what they said is, and we, we actually talked about this at toward the end of the reader episode, if, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that. But what they said is, you know what, you know, if you give us a, a kilowatt hour, we're going to give you like credit for 0.8 kilowatt hours. That's essentially what NEM 2.0 is. There are certain charges you can't get around by virtue of sending power to us. Um, and then they played with the time of use hours a little bit, but it was kind of like a way of just saying like, you know, we need to, you know, recognize the time at which energy is exported to the grid. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that giving us energy doesn't get rid of our fixed costs. That was kind of the point of them 2.0. Um, but pretty quickly after this, um, you know, announcement that solar was going to be required on every building. Everybody started thinking like bigger, like we just said. Right and now, we've got an M three Because I think that's like the big question, right? Is that generally you think of supply, right? The energy itself is being about a third of the cost on the bill, and so if you're giving eighty percent of the cost on the on the bill, then it's like, well, is is solar actually providing that much value? Yes or no is kind of the big question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what's like that on percentage the side of things? On the T and D side of things, like, how much is it? How much value is it contributing? And what should be that portion they're paying? Yeah, and you know, it's probably more than thirty percent, and it's definitely less than a hundred percent. And so, like, that's the big question: where does it land? And, <laughs> yeah, and how and when, and you know, how will it be administered? Blah blah blah. So anyway, that's what NEM three was. It was kind of like okay. Lots of solar's coming. We got to get this right. Um, and, you know, it revealed, yeah, I'd say very fundamental differences of opinion um, in how to deal with this. Um, so maybe let's, let's jump into where we are now. So the NEM 3.0 proceeding has gone on for, I couldn't tell you how long, but like over a year, I don't know, yep. a long regulatory process, lots of meetings and comments and et cetera which um, earlier in December of this year, 2021, um, sort of came together with what's called a proposed decision. So the energy regulator said, we've heard everybody's view. We've kind of condensed all of the you know, arguments into you know, XYZ positions. Here's what we think should probably be done. And 
you know, after the proposed decision is released, everybody gets a chance to kind of comment on it and say what they think about it. But like, you know, it's 85, 90% of the way there, right? It's sort of the end of the process. Um, and the pro proposed decision really took a lot of people, um, it, it surprised people. Probably those who were extremely involved knew this was coming, but a lot of the industry went, whoa, <laughs> this is <Yeah. laughs> fundamentally different than what we've ever looked at before. Well, do you want to um, maybe like just for to set the stage, I guess, like initial reactions, like to yeah, I M3.0, like kind of quick takes and then we can because, you know, once we dive into the weeds, it's it's over. It's over. <laughs> so um, you seem to be the most most knowledgeable on NEM3, Duncan, especially because you guys do a lot of work out there. But like, so what's what's your high level take? Uh, my personal take is without getting into details, NEM3 does two things. One of them I find to be quite reasonable. One of them I find to be very unreasonable. Um, so it, it was almost good, I guess, is my take. But, um, <laughs> you know, that that second thing really bothers me. Um, so that's my take. I My take is, is maybe less than M3 and just more of like me thinking about states' rights and utilities lately. <laughs> Which is, it's crazy to me how complicated and different every single state is going to be. Like seeing NEM3 and then thinking about Vitor and then thinking about like every other market. I was just like, we yeah. got to find, like, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. So your, your take is kind of on like. My take is like a macro level. And, like yeah. we need to think about. Yeah. We need to think about like the foundations of like how this should work because creating like all of these different solutions for different technologies. And like, it's just not going to work for us 10 years down the line. If yeah. we get to where we think we need to be. Yeah. The biggest part of the energy bill is going to be legal fees. Pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of come to where you are calling from like a different angle. My quick take is like, I've said this before, probably just move out of California. <laughs> Where to like, Miami? Think, Are you a Miami guy? No, I mean anywhere. Uh, there's a lot of places you can go, but I'm joking. But the I I mean it's like it's a mess. Like I'm kind of I'm kind of you know the term now is like black pilled. I guess people are, the kids the the teens are saying that online. I'm not cool like, enough for that. When you see the when you like truly confront like the inadequacies of our current bureaucracy and political system and division and everything you're oh, just like like the red pill we're, and the blue pill are both like, yeah you just yeah. get like really um the nihilist in my, I'm, so i'm kind of like black pilled on the next five years but then like very optimistic on like a 10 to 30 year horizon because i think it's going to be ugly like in a lot of states and markets for the short to midterm um, kind of agreeing with you, Colleen, but like there, there just has to be some sort of more national macro thing that emerges out of all of this mess. Like I've said it before too, is like, I feel like there has to be some sort of Supreme court case or, you know, there's something fundamental going on here as far as like what we see as people's like rights and how they're going to interact with the grid. And, um, I just don't, it doesn't seem like that is going to get sorted by the CPUC at this point. <laughs> so, no. um, 
uh, I don't know, like a purple ruling. You know what I mean? Like in 1978, yeah. it just kind of like, and maybe that's maybe that happened. Maybe it's FERC order 2222, and you know, we just need time to like work through all this. But um, a couple lawsuits I'm just, based around it. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of look at California, and I'm like, oh my god, like, <laughs> what do you even do? Um, but I don't know. I, I'll, I'll kind of unpack that more. But that's just kind of my you know, let's stir the pot a bit here, but no, that's, that's good. But yeah, yeah save, save your firepower for the conclusion section because I want to get into all that stuff. Yeah. All right. So the NEM three proposed decision, I mean, there's two basic parts to this, right? There's what are we going to do with energy you send to the grid? And if we fix that, are there any changes we still have to make about the energy you use from the grid? right? Um, That's at a high level what NEM3 is trying to address, right? Let's start with the to the grid part, which I'm going to, from this point forward, refer to as exports, right? When you send energy to the grid, I'm calling that an export. What's it worth? Um, And this is the, in in my hot take, the first part I talked about, which I, I generally am on board with. It basically establishes something similar to New York's value of distributed energy resources tariff. Um, There's some key differences, but the idea is in a fundamental physics, techno-economics manner, let's determine what this stuff is actually worth and give it to people. Mm -hmm. And it should incent the right behaviors. It should allow for like new innovation and, um, you know, new service options from, you know, from independent providers who can help customers deal with this, you know, it, it sets the stage for like the right things. Um, and this is called the avoided cost calculator. So basically when a kilowatt hour goes into the grid from, you know, behind somebody's meter, uh, what costs does it help the system avoid? Um, and what's kind of interesting and different from Veter is that the avoided cost calculator is actually used for a variety of things in California, not just solar exports under this proposed decision, but um, utility efficiency programs. So where where the the CPUC allows the utility to create an incentive for like, let's say high efficiency air conditioners, the incentive value is based on the reduced electricity consumption um, that the grid would have to deal with. And you know, summing up all the parts of that, the energy value, the capacity value, the T&D value, blah, 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 and saying, here's the incentive that's like techno-economically what it's worth. Um, so the avoided cost calculator is used for that. And now it's going to be used for exports. I kind of love that. It's like consistent. It makes right. sense. There's one standard. There's no mess treats around. all load yeah. kind of the same. It's like load is load and the value on the T&D side well, and interestingly, and we'll get back to this later, it's treating exports, solar exports, the same as avoided imports. Mm-hmm. We're going to get that to the next section, <laughs> in the next section, but I think that is critical. It's saying that they're the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is encouraging that, like, um, what in like in like science, uh, when there's like different research groups that independently arrive at the same conclusions, you're like, okay, this is probably you know we're onto something here. Yeah, yeah, um, and that it kind of feels like New York and California that like we are sort of very different routes there arriving at like this slowly. Like, yeah. Basically there's a T and D value and there's a energy value. 
which makes sense because like you have you have to build wires to transport power <laughs> so solar rooftop solar is going to impact that and then you have actually the power that needs to be transported and it generates power um so which has two components energy and capacity uh depending on how you look at it but um i found that i found that encouraging but there are there are some problems with the how they're kind of doing the avoided costs right that we have to get into like there are some it's directionally correct but there's there's definitely some some issues with how they're proposing it currently so hopefully that gets like chipped away and reformed as it works through yeah all the different I, working groups and stuff and i think the whole avoided cost calculator way of dealing with exports like allows for that like there's nothing structurally wrong with it right you can you can fix little things and improve things but like it's the right framework. Um, right. And I do think right. it's worth saying, like, there's a lot of people who spent like a decade getting that in place, like worked <laughs> very tirelessly <laughs> to figure out what the hell the avoidance right. calculator should be. And that's pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, though, it is worth, I guess, pointing out some of those small things. Um, these are not things that make me say NEM3 is a disaster. These are just the things that come to mind we can improve on. Um, one of them is, you know, the, figuring out what the energy value of exports is or, or the capacity value, um, which is a little weird in California because they don't have a traditional capacity market, but whatever. Um, that's relatively straightforward, right? Like it's, it's yeah. you know, there's market data on this stuff. Um, you know, there's questions about how you implement it, like, you know, which... Are you going to expose the customers to the day ahead or the real time? Are you going to try to like chunk it into more chunky bit? You know, so like there's, averages. There's and... implementation questions, but like none of it's like new stuff. You know, it's it's relatively straightforward, and I'm sure the avoided cost calculator deals with it well. The T and D part is tricky because mm -hmm. it's like by nature a counterfactual. It's saying like if this kilowatt hour didn't go into the grid <laughs> over decades, how much more grid would we have to build? And it's, that's a hard thing to do. Right? right. But that is, I mean, that is what is generally sort of done though. Right. Like when you want to build a new building or like you want to like put something on the grid, like that's the analysis that's happening. That's the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reverse is true. Right. You build a big building. It's going to have, it's going to use a megawatt of power. Yeah, like you figure out what cost that will incur. Yeah. So you yeah. could make that counterfactual by saying, okay, we don't like this doesn't come on the grid. Like, what do we need? Now you're not doing that analysis on every single project that's installed at like every single time of day. So like, sure, it's like comp somewhat more complicated to like come up with a, a system, but it is something that could be done. Um, and is done yeah. in sort of like general grid studies when utilities are doing planning. Yeah. And I mean, what, what, what I think is th there's, there's a bunch of kind of little dark alleys to go down here, but like what I think is most interesting is it requires an assumption about load growth, right? Because mm -hmm. let's say there's never going to be load growth again. Well, then the avoided costs of exporting power are pretty low because there's few variable costs associated with the grid. It's right. It's like maybe costs. you're deferring upgrades, but yeah, like, like that transformer. Okay. Like in you know, 30 years, this transformer might give out and then like, rather than in like 32 years, you yeah. know, like, but yeah, like there's not a lot, but if there's load growth, then reduced, you know, reducing load 
behind the meter and actually contributing load to it mm-hmm. or supply to a feeder could actually really avoid some new invest investments, which is great. Um, so it all can, is contingent on that. Now, I think the avoided task calculator kind of assumes a, a business as usual load growth scenario. Like, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably like 2% or something like that. Um, just kind of like typical stuff from like the last 20 years, um, uh, which, you know, the last 20 years have been quite low because of right. efficiency. Um, but, you know, whatever, some just kind of like standard load growth. Um, I would love to see what the avoided T&D costs out, turn out to be in an electrification scenario. We've talked mm-hmm. about this a bunch on this podcast, right? If everybody's vehicle and everybody's heat is electric, we do have to build a lot more grid. Um, and this stuff starts to become more interesting again. And like, I don't know, I don't think it is in law, but like generally California's goals are to do exactly that. Right. Um, so maybe the avoided cost calculator should reflect that. Um, that would be interesting to me. So one, like what are the assumptions in there for the T&D value? Right. And I think like the location of the T&D value too, right? Because like Vitor has like some of those, to your point, like has like some of those like really constrained areas that they're calling out. Yeah, it's like the additional right. that we have like the, the general T and D value, but then the like you're in this zone T and D value. Yeah. yeah, which I think like ideally you'd have a more automated way of doing that, but that would be a part of it, right? Because to your point, like electrification is happening, but it's also not happening equally across areas, and so like yeah. a super dense EV area is going to need that, and like again, you socialize T and D infrastructure upgrades, so like. By avoiding T and D upgrades in one neighborhood, it helps the entire grid system from an avoided cost perspective. Yeah, yeah. A, a big a big piece of of that point is like in the past. I mean, a lot of the grid build out from the '40s till the '70s or so, when there was a lot of load growth, was building new pockets of load, like rural mm-hmm. electri- like electrifying the country, like uh, at a like you know, there wasn't level. any yeah. grid, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we're going to see in this sort of go around of electrification is like a lot more load in already constrained areas. Um, and so I would say, I would guess that we're going to be heavily underweighting the T&D value of on-site solar and storage and generators, whatever it is. Because when you take that business as, as usual case, there's like two errors. One, like there's not as much load growth, but two, there's not enough load growth, but two, it's also in areas that are going to be very tough to build new infrastructure in. Like a bus depot in Manhattan. <laughs> it's like, this is really, and there, you can't even really build solar there either. So it's like a, an extreme case, but. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I and I, I totally agree. I think like, it's one area where, you know, unlike energy and capacity value, which is kind of just like let the data talk. This mm-hmm. is very much about like how you see the future of the grid, right? Because we're talking about like 25-year horizons, 30-year horizons, um, and the assumptions really matter. Another quick thing I'll say on the T&D aspect of the avoided cost calculators. So this is a little over my head, but like people who are really into this have basically told me that the methodology is actually more robust than beaters beater kind of like academically looks at like grid expansion costs and like assigns value or something like that 
Um, whereas the avoided cost calculator like takes the utilities plans and like the budgets they're submitting and like breaks them down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, has been doing it for like 10 or 15 years. So there's like good information behind it. But one thing that's interesting is, you know, the utilities don't necessarily submit budgets for like 20 years from now. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so for the, for today through five years, you have these like very fine grained avoided costs. And then for years, I think it's seven through 25, it's just kind of like a shot in the wind. And then the time in between, they just interpolate between the two. And what you find is the first five years, the value is pretty low. And then five to seven, it goes up. And then seven through 25, the value is very high. (laughs) So it's like, there's something there. I mean, I think we're probably like working with the best information we have. Um, But clearly like there's some issues there where it's like, in the near future, T and D value is really important, but right now it's not important. It's kind of <laughs> odd, um, and it aligns with this issue of the T and D value and the cost calculator generally is sort of guaranteed to the solar owner at the time of their installation for five years. So you're getting sort of five years of contracted value. And in Veter, you get like twenty. For certain things, right? Veter's a for bit more surgical things. with it. See, Veter's like, right. yeah, for the distribution grid benefits, you get, yeah, like 20 years, like the full asset life is like, right. that's how the grid works, right? Right. Um, but like the energy, we don't give you any, like, you know, get weird yeah, in just, the energy markets, just, you know? Yeah, like, in real time. The the ACC seems to kind of throw five years at everything, which probably is that makes less sense on the energy side. And, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. right. Like energy should be one to three years. And T and D should be like 10 to 20 or just like the life of the asset, the life of the asset. Right. Yeah. Cause that's like what we do with the pull. But it is, I mean, I get, I, I get that. I mean, if you don't really know, I guess it's weird. Cause like on the one hand in the Vitor sort of incarnation in New York, we're making assumptions about the 20 year T and D budget, which we don't actually really know. Mm-hmm. And so the developer is kind of getting a guaranteed return, but it, it may actually end up undervaluing that system. Like what you're saying about how the avoided cost calculator actually looks kind of maps to what I'm saying is like the next five to seven years, like there will be more EVs, there'll be more heat pumps, but it's not going to like break the grid where we're getting worried is like after 15, you know, by 2030, yeah. I think in California or whatever the date is like they're phasing out gas vehicle purchasing completely. Right. So like, once you start looking in that 2030 to 2050 range and you're assuming everyone driving EVs, it's like the value could go through the roof. So, but how are you going to convince like a banker today to be like, look, you really want to get long T and D costs. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you, you want to take this five-year deal because the value is going to explode in the next five to 10 years after that. Like no one actually, yeah. like right. Goldman doesn't like want to buy that secure, securitized asset. They want like the fixed, 20 year, uh, Vitor version, even if it's, I don't know, I guess in a weird light, like California is taking a better approach, even if it's worse for how financiers want to approach it. Cause in five-year tranches, you will get more accurate like value, I guess. So it's, I don't know. It's, it, it kind of cuts both ways. It's a good point. It gives the opportunity to increase the value, uh, Mm -hmm. as, as like load growth materializes and stuff. 
which of course you can do in New York at the end of the 20 years. Cause like you probably own that site to a certain degree. You can yeah, like you can, repower yeah. the system or something. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. So anyway, that, that, that's one thing I, I do think in general, like it gets at this question of, do we view the T and D services offered by DERs as like real T and D services, or are we right. just kind of like saying, yeah, there's some T and D service here. Right. Cause if it's real, like if we see it as equivalent to a pole with a transformer on it, um, you know, there probably should be some um, continuity between the two and how we, you know, compensate them. And I think there's like real arguments about that. Right. Cause you know, a battery, a pole with a transformer on it by nature provides T and D services. A battery actually has to be used correctly to do that. Um, it may or may not actually deliver on those services right. in the future. Right. Um, so you, there's probably a difference in compensation mechanism, but right. like the value should be the same. Um, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, we yeah. do in the exports and even just no, how normal load works. Like you do have a dollar per KW demand charge yeah. usually. Um, and I think, I think in Vitor they even do that based on the time of use. I mean, especially utilities know, cause they run demand response programs at certain hours of the day. So it's not an insurmountable challenge. It's just like, here's the window you have to use the, the battery, yeah. obviously yeah. not on the energy capacity side, but on the on the demand side. So it's like the rate is guaranteed for X number of years. And I think there should be continuity with utility assets, but you getting the, you know, it's yeah, dependent you on if you actually perform. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So anyway, that that's the whole exports side of the num 3 thing. I mean, I don't know, you guys tell me, but the way I feel about it is kind of like, it's a good first show. Uh, you know, there's some stuff to do, but like, this is the right framework and we can improve on it in the future. It reminds me of Vitor in right. that sense. Yeah, I think it's the right framework. And I think the things that they don't have, like that could be improved on are the things that no one really knows how to do yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like, could we make it better? Yes. Is there work that needs to be done in order to figure it out? Absolutely. Um, but it, is using the right reference points. Yeah. You know, and I will say like, so the rooftop solar industry is like obviously going nuts um, Mm -hmm. as kind of they do. And it's the same complaints that they had about Vitor. It's just like, oh man, it's complicated. And like, wait, the value is different in different areas. It's just like, it's kind of like, I get it that it's going to be a, a tough transition. And there actually is a market transition credit in there to try to like smooth the market out a little on its way toward, toward this. But like, look, we're, we're real energy market participants now. Like the ERs are not a sideshow. Like yeah. we have to, you know, play with the adults and this is part of it. One of the things I've been thinking though about on that, and I haven't fully formed my thought here, but it is interesting that on the export side. I know we're going to move to imports in a second. On the export side, we're like, okay, like customers can figure it out. Like you want to put solar on your roof. Like you can figure out the costs are going to change and things are going to be all wacky. But then on the import side, we're like, it's going to be simple, but we want everyone to have solar. So the right. exports can be complicated, but imports have to be simple. We don't like everyone hates like the idea of real-time rates for resi, but then yeah, we yeah. kind of do it on exports for resi. 
And so it's just this like weird disconnect when we're like, if you want to add something to your house, like now it's going to be complicated for you. Yeah. I do want to move into that imports piece. The, the, like just the last thing I'd say on the complication side is like, I do remember this. Even I was like, what the heck is Vitor for like a year? Like people would be like, (laughs) oh, there's all these credit, like here's all the things. And I was like, I don't understand this. But then you just like build one Excel model and you're done. (laughs) (laughs) You just like plug in the values. It's like really not. I remember you pushing back on me. I was saying this in the Vitor episode. Yeah. And I was like, like, be a New York person. And you're like, like, no, you build the model. And then the answer is 18 cents. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Call Russell. Yeah. (laughs) Call Russell and say, what's that? What's this worth? Um, But to your point, Colleen is like, obviously, you know, we're a third party. Um, like, so this is coming from, you know, it's a biased perspective, I guess, but I think what like regulators and utilities and stuff need to do is like show the underbelly of the system and the physics and the techno-economics, as you say, Duncan, as much as possible. And then, so like unbundle everything and then let, whether it's the utility itself or third parties like DER providers, solar providers, you know, software companies, retailers, rebundle that and and issue a bill to the customer it's like why consolidated billing is so important is like you can make this simple to the customer they don't need to know like what the duck's feet are doing under the water you know what i mean like it's just mm-hmm. but you need you need to expose the market to all of those like fundamental signals so yeah you like get the language right but then right and choose how you speak <laughs> yeah yeah so to colleen's yeah. point to like arbitrarily be like oh we got to make imports simple but exports can be complicated is like no the whole thing is just like let's get the physics right and 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 kind of let the market go from there mm-hmm. can i just really quickly ask on this point like does anyone understand their energy bill anyway like in the most simple framework where you have like a fixed charge and a flat volumetric charge no you still have no idea when you're like should i roast this turkey i don't know that's going to cost 12 cents of electricity like no one knows no No one one has any idea like no one's able to make like informed decisions in their daily lives about their energy use so like i think i think this like it's got to be simple thing is kind of a straw man like it because it doesn't exist when has it ever been simple well I mean, people understand to the extent like, oh, it's, it's more in the summer because it's hotter and I use more power. Yeah. Um, summer. Yeah. More, summer, very sophisticated, more power, like, more in, bill. Okay. It's funny. Yeah. A lot of gritty customers in Texas like had generate like I like <laughs> like talk to these people on Twitter. They're like, I want gritty back because like when prices went above X, I'd flip my generator on. Like they knew the strike, the spread between gas and power. It was like, okay, that's <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, Whoa. there are, I mean, there's definitely sophisticated customers out there, but I, I do think that, um, I do think that dynamic is changing and that's why I'm very for this unbundling because I think you can kind of create, I'm not like a nudge economist or whatever, like, but there, there are like behavioral easy ways that you can get residential customers to be like, Oh, like this is a pricey time of day. And they can kind of like intuitively understand that really like you just send them money for turning like DR, just send them money for turning their thermostat up or something. So I, I, I do think that'll change, but I do agree at this point in time, like, there isn't a really deep understanding and obviously the vast majority of, of customers. Yeah. Like obviously the heuristics are there. It's like, whether it's just like more 
more usage, more bill or, you know, chunky time of use rates, like more expensive, you know, right. at during these hours. Yeah. 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 But I'm, I'm saying like, no one's able to actually understand like decision-making in the moment. Like when like I make my coffee. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, it's just kind of like, it, it's like the way, you know, your family teaches you morality. It's just kind of like, I should try to do this and not do this, but like, I don't yeah. really know why, you know, <laughs> I think EVs are, will change that though. Cause <laughs> Americans do have like a pretty, uh, I mean, it's not very sophisticated, but they do have a relationship with like gas prices. <laughs> like namely they get very mad when they go up. That's um, true. so like when you're charging your EV, you're going to start noticing like, Oh, I'm spending, I mean, that's a huge power draw. So you're like, well, I'm spending, $200 a week more now instead yeah, of way 80, more than I did you know. last month. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Biden. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So let's go to imports then. Um, so I think this is like where this gets pretty fun. Um, and there's probably the most room for disagreement. Um, so there's, there's at a high level, there's two things. The uh, NEM three proposed decision proposes. Um, and it is that, Customers with solar will, one, have a new fixed charge on their bill that no other customers have, and two, their time of use hours and the rates associated with those hours will be different than everyone else's. Um, So high level, the way to describe both of those things is solar customers will be on special import rates. You know, having already properly dealt with their exports, we're also going to change how they buy electricity. And the idea behind this was even if you properly deal with the exports, if you kind of do the, the sort of high level economics, there still appears to be a quote cost shift, right? Where, you know, overall solar pay, solar customers are, are sort of paying less into the system, you know, per unit of usage than other customers. And so this view was developed over the proceedings from M3 that, we also had to make import rates fix this somehow to get rid of the cost shift. That was that was the view, and the approach taken was let's you know solar customers will be on a special rate, and that rate's going to basically make them pay more um, through these two mechanisms of different time of use periods and rates and, and a fixed fee. Just for context, the fixed fee, I think it's eight dollars per kW, and that's of installed capacity. That's not like for KW peak usage or something like that. Like it has no relation to the performance of your system or your solar system relative to your load profile. It's just like the number of glass panels you put on your roof is what you have to pay based on. Um, a tip for a typical system, what that adds up to is 50 bucks a month. So it's like not tiny. It's not like $10. You know, it's not like right. your fixed fees eight and normally yeah, it's and now $8 it's per kilowatt month, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like your fixed charges went like up a lot. Um, you know, my typical electricity bill in Con Ed, one of the more expensive utilities is like 70 bucks a month. So yeah, like $50 is a lot. Is a lot right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the time of use rates, I don't have them offhand, but like they're, you know, they're like structurally different than everyone else's time of use rates. Like the, the hours are shifted over deeper into the evening to try to incentivize storage, you know, that, the difference, the delta between like peak and off peak is like enormous. Like the peak rates are like 51 cents or something, right. um, which I'm kind of fine with in theory, but I 
I think the question we're going to ask here is why should anyone's rates be different than anyone else's? Right. right. Like why penalize if, solar? Like if that- rates are meant to reflect the cost of the system, the rate should be able to properly deal with anybody's load profile. I mean, and exports are tricky, but we've already dealt with those properly. So like whether you use a lot at night and not a lot during the day or the reverse, a utility bill should be able to deal with that. At least that's my view. Um, and, And it sounds kind of a, like a technicality or something like you're just arguing about philosophy, but to me, it's really important. Um, one, I think for Pauline's original take, which is like, how are we going to make a special rate for every special situation? You know, understanding that, like, in my opinion, there's an explosion of DERs coming. Like, are we really going to like, you know, do some giant consulting exercise, like every time there's something new, it just seems really hard to do. Um, like for example, let's, you know, solar makes your usage pattern be low during the day and high at night, you know, relative to each other and yeah. low during the summer and high during the winter relative to each other. What does a heat pump do? It makes your usage higher at night and lower during the day relative to each other and higher in the winter and lower in the summer. Same exact general effect on load profile relative to the average customer. So if you have solar and you get this special rate and then you add a heat pump, is the idea like now you're on the super special rate, which like has an even higher standby charge. Yeah. And then if you have an EV, like you have to have a different EV rate if you're just an EV that does managed charging versus a vehicle to grid because like you could yeah. import versus just export. Or maybe we'll put a whole new meter on it and let you just have the EV rate. It's like, it gets crazy, I think. And yeah. Add in battery storage <laughs> and smart thermostats and like demand response flexibility. And it's just like, how is any of this going to work if it takes four years to make the special rate for like anything? Well, even even funnier, I mean, um, an even simpler way of illustrating the point I think we've talked about is like, if you just had some load sync, like say it's a Bitcoin mine and you just created an identical load profile to a solar customer, you would pay different for imports than the solar customer because you don't have solar on your roof. And so the argument then is like, Oh, the exports put an additional strain on the grid, I guess. But it's like, uh, I mean, you already did that through the avoided. It actually does avoided cost. It's avoided costs. It doesn't add costs. Like, well, and if already established that it's good, you know, it's good for reducing TND infrastructure. So it's just like it's just an insane concept. And if for some reason it didn't, like, let's say you had some argument, then you have a a per kW like export charge, right? If like you export. Right. You need to have some amount of TND capacity to export that. Fine. Right. Um, I mean, maybe we not fine, but like that's approach. another conversation. Yeah. Right. But like to Duncan's point, like nameplate capacity of imports, like you could have solar on your roof, never export it. Yeah. And you'd still be paying $50 <laughs> extra a month. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, is it about <laughs> like when they built the grid, they didn't expect solar. So now there's like fixed costs that have been sunk into the grid that they're trying to recover. I mean, I don't even think that's the argument that they made. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's like the general premise, premise, maybe not like fixed costs in the past, but like, right, the idea is that you still need, is that a lot of fixed costs are, while there are fixed costs on bills, a lot of the fixed cost infrastructure is still built into the volumetric rate, right? Yes. Your dollar per KWH includes fixed costs. And so I think they're trying to say like, you're now what, using California? a lot in every state. 
in a lot of places. Yeah. But I mean, not every state. Oh, I won't say when that, you're small like, enough, your demand charges are volumetric. Yeah. I mean, well, Resi doesn't like, usually have demand charges, right? Yeah. So right. like your delivery side of the bill has a lot of volumetric charges on it, which doesn't make right. sense because mostly right. it's fixed costs. But we have, we have dollar per KW charges in CNI. Can't we just like, so that's one option, Make right? One peak. option is, yeah. yeah. So and I think that goes, so that goes, like that's the I, fundamental thing. Yeah. That's the, right. my fundamental. Yeah. My fundamental feeling here is that the way resi rates are designed was meant to be like relatively simple. Right. I mean, like, let's just go like pre NEM, pre time of use, right? Like you, you had a fixed charge and you had a per like for basically like the administration. And then you had like a per KWH charge. The idea that if you're like using the grid more, you're paying more of the delivery costs, mm-hmm. right? That was like why it was built in that way. And then as like weird things have happened and like different, you know, we've like added in time, like chunky time of use rates to make it simple for the customer. And fundamentally though, like all of these different things are going to happen. Like you're going to have EVs and heat pumps and storage and solar. They all have different ways that they interact with the grid and change your load. And that's probably different depending on where you are, right? Like in really cold climates, heat pumps might create winter peaking issues. Like in California, winter peaking from heat pumps, like isn't really going to be your issue. Um, And so like things are going to be different by different states. And it's sort of like, okay, well, what does it cost to run the grid? (laughs) And like, how do we kind of make those costs relatively equal across all customers? Mm -hmm. And what, and like, sure, like, I think there's this fundamental question that I think this, what they're saying here in California is that they want to cost shift more equally across all resi customers is should you pay more for delivery charges if you use the grid more, right? So like right now it's volumetric based. And so if you use the grid more in theory, you're paying for more of it. And they're kind of saying like, actually, we think people that's like too far one way. We think it should be kind of like, if you access the grid, you pay a simpler thing, which is why they're trying to shift it back to the solar customers. Yeah, it is basically solar throws that whole sort of framework on its head, right? Because right. solar customers use a lot fewer kilowatt hours, but still have demand during peak demand times. And so it just kind of kills the whole thing. Which is why, like, a, to James's point, like a, a demand charge could solve that, right? Because then every yeah, customer like- is getting hit the same. That's the fundamental issue we're dealing with. Simultaneously, like we don't want to make residential customers exposed to demand charges. I, personally, I'm fine with it, but people hate this idea. Yeah. Um, but then we also want to like deal with solar properly, and like you can't do both at once, which is why we have special solar rates. Like yeah. that's how why we are where we are. And James, to your point, like CNI does pay a demand charge, but it's kind of a BS demand charge because it's non-coincident. You know, your peak demand could be at two in the morning when it doesn't matter. Right. You pay based on mm, that. Most, that's not true in every state. Yeah, so yeah, CNI, yeah, fair, fair. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe in California it is. I guess, I mean, well, I guess- no, what California I'm... does have like on-peak demand charges too, but I'm just like the yeah. general CNI demand charge is just whatever your peak demand is during the during right. period, 15 minutes, like that kind of thing. There's like three components here. I mean- one is that if you're build like you build a new building, you have to build a new interconnection. And if you have solar or something behind it that can knock down those interconnection costs or something, because like the nameplate, like your peak load is going to go down. Um, and you're identifying that on day one, 
it won't I don't see why it won't right Na- national electric code like utility standards it won't you, you right. gotta have well the for average now for yeah. your peak load. yeah right and so if you're let's say you have like a neighborhood on the end of a feeder and there's like a little substation or transformer built there and then everyone installs solar and it like messes with i mean what you'd kind of have to do is like like does the does the coincident peak of that thing matter or the fact that it's just installed capacity like there is an argument like we built this thing yeah i see what you're saying and we need i mean over a certain time horizon though because like how long do you get a guaranteed rate of return you get your 8% until your capital is like paid back and you rate base that. But then if everyone stops using that nameplate capacity, you shouldn't get your, the utilization of it goes down. It should have been smaller in the first place. Like you shouldn't be able to recover like the full value of it or something. Cause California does do stuff like this. Like they call it like departing load charges and stuff when you build microgrids. And I, I kind of get that argument for that one particular piece of equipment that's like built for, a certain purpose yeah and it, in theory that should just be a, the customer's fixed charge like, right you know, right like there's just no way around right. it yeah the second piece is like okay there is this bulk system that we all benefit from and that's what people come down come back to is like we all have to socialize this and pay for it however the third piece is when you look at california where they can't even like through public safety power shutoffs can't even like guarantee reliability of the grid they're like charging you a fixed fee to have access to a grid that's like breaking down in fundamental ways. Like it's very, like, it's not a very good deal in my mind, you know? Um, so I've never been like a big utility death spiral guy. I'm like, that just seems like really overblown, but in California, like, are they going to push it to an extent where people are just like, I don't know, I have an EV, I have solar and a battery and like, my uptime is like pretty good compared to what you're like, is there going to be less exporting or how are people going to start? Um, I guess like taking matters into their own hands. If the grid is slapping these like huge fees on them and then not really delivering, like, I guess like if you're going to make that fixed fee argument, shouldn't it come with some like guarantee of reliability or uptime, which we're not seeing in California. Yeah. That's interesting. I Similar to like the question about, yeah, load defection or whatever it's like there is a version of soft load defection which is like plug and play solar so like you know not like i'm going to take my house off the grid screw the utility but just like hey when i build the shed out back like i'm not going to wire it up i'm just going to put some panels on it so bad or Mm -hmm. uh really interesting solutions like have you guys seen this battery i I love it's called blip which is like Oh it's yeah. A, it's a battery. You'd, you'd like put it in between the outlet and like your air conditioner and mm. it'll take your air conditioner off the grid when energy is expensive, but it doesn't require an interconnection or anything because it's all like a transfer switch. There's no like paralleling. So like stuff like that will become more popular too, where it's just kind of right. like avoiding the system, not going off the grid completely or anything like that, yeah. but just like, yeah, solar now is just like not connected to the grid and like we're not going to help provide value to the grid. We're just going to like keep it to ourselves. That could right. that could be more common. I mean, yeah, I, I think like there's a lot this gets at. Um, but like, yeah, the fundamental thing is our unwillingness to make rates cost reflective. 
Like that's, that's what we're right. dealing with. And right. Right. Like when you refuse to make rates cost reflective, when the marginal cost of electricity for most consumers is way higher than it actually should be. Well then, yeah, when something like solar comes along, I guess you do have to make a super special rate for it. But I, I just really think that's a dead end. Like it, we're, it, we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we do that. Um, I do want to introduce at some point, I, there's like the second issue too, which is not just, is it practical? Is it the right way? Like, I think it also creates weird incentives for the regulatory yeah. process. Well, and just before we get into like the weird incentives, I do just want to say too, on like, cause I think one of the reasons it's talked about a lot, right. Is because of equity. And I kind of want to like flip the question, which is like, why like put a charge on solar to solve equity rather than like create a common charge that's cost reflective and then provide help and support totally. to the people that need it yeah. as the way of solving equity. Yeah. Because then yeah. you're not just saying, oh, like most rich people have solar and therefore solar should bear these costs, which then makes it harder for low-income people to do solar, which <laughs> yeah. perpetuates the problem. You then right. say, okay, like most people will bear these costs some wealthy people have solar, some wealthy people don't have solar. They're going to continue to pay the normal rate. People that need support in the LMI community can get support. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's how right. we deal with this problem. Right. It just like feels like the wrong way to go about it because then you just make it, then you have to make like special, right. you have like your special solar rates. And then you have to have like your LMI community solar yeah. solutions right. rather than just like saying, how do we help the LMI community with yeah. their energy bills in right. general? No solar for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and there's actually precedent for the SGIP program, the battery storage program, has mm-hmm. a has a LMI adder, and yeah. it's just cheaper to get a battery if you're L- if you qualify for certain, you know. And it's maybe not perfect. I don't know, but like yeah. you can do this. Yeah. I mean, I, I it sounds like what we're all kind of like arriving at here is you do need to make an honest attempt at creating price signals that sort of get at the underlying like physics or techno-economics of the grid as as you say Duncan and then letting kind of people respond to that and if that does create inequities you address that sort of external to those things through like socialized problems and stuff but I think and this is where I talk about like getting blackpilled or whatever about California is like the road they're going down is as you guys pointed out is like you know, I joke in the Northeast, it's bad enough that basically the way capacity markets is like a few modelers in a room are like, this is how much energy we need. And then at least from there, there's like a market place around whatever that bureaucratic decision is. Even in Texas, like when we set the price cap, like that kind of dictates a lot of the economics from there, but it is a market and people can make decisions um, based on that. But I mean, in the Northeast, we typically end up overbuying capacity as a result. And I don't know, maybe the argument in Texas, as we've seen, is we're underbuying. But that that all aside, like that's already a, a muddy enough process. And now we're talking about like by device, by location, by like the bureaucratic mess that these concepts create of like a different rate for every different load profile yeah. is is like, it's just not tenable. It's going to become like the kind of, I don't know, just Orwellian, like double speak and not, I don't mean in like a malicious way of just like, 
this kind of like funny, like all of the logic just starts bending around on itself. And it's like, what are we mm-hmm. doing here? Like, yeah, that, it's that impossible is to keep where I see it's going. It's just yeah. impossible to, or like a catch 22 or whatever. It's just mm-hmm. like, just none glasses. of this is going to end up yeah. making any sense because we've already pointed out multiple ways in which the logic is inconsistent at the very least. So like, you know, we can get into the fixed costs and like, how do you recover all this stuff, like de- departing load, whatever, whatever you want to get into using the system in general. Um, but what I do know is that what's being proposed here is like, not, it's just, it's just like extremely untenable. Um, yep. It seems like. It- and I will point out that like there are also examples of this in favor of the rooftop solar industry. So like this is a universal problem. This is not just like, so for example, in a lot of California, you have what are called option R rates. So say you're like on, you know, the B19 rate. Um, if you get solar, you can, you can apply for the option R rate, which basically reduces the cost of demand charges and embeds them into the volumetric charges, thus providing more value to solar. Now that's going to go away with men free, it looks like, but like solar has benefited from that for a long time because I guess they lobbied the right people or whatever. Like that's equally dumb in my opinion. Like that's the same problem of like special stuff where what we're doing right now, I think is like a less controversial question, but like with EV rates, right? We want more EVs in California. So we're going to just get rid of demand charges for EVs. <laughs> like what? Like, well, huh? like, like, why don't we just maybe like add an EV subsidy or something, but like, we're just mm-hmm. going to like break the like fundamental way in which we recover costs from the system because like. And then not incentivize these huge new demand adders to actually manage their demand. Like why? Right. right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they're. <laughs> like, what, what if you just. Yeah, like we do smart things like make ready programs. Um, and who knows, you could even add a per kWh like energy subsidy for EV chargers if you really wanted to. But like, we're just going to say like grid physics, nah, like <laughs> it just is weird. And like, and then again, put it in, in a tariff that then takes years to then like revise later and you have to yeah. grandfather people in versus like temporary programs that help the start of a business it's yeah yeah and then it expires in like five years anyway so it's like i built my infrastructure for this but now it doesn't it's it's just weird i no, i totally agree james i think it's like you run the risk of just like it all collapsing under its own bureaucratic weight yeah. because like no one knows what like we're trying to do anymore right, right. it's just like and now, the ultimate yeah. irony is like the worse functioning it gets the worse it is for the lower income customers that it's said to protect who are the least likely to mm-hmm. be able to move from California, which I joke about. And like, I don't actually yeah, mean that. Yeah. I don't want a bunch of Californians being like, like, screw you, dude. Like this is my home or whatever. <laughs> like I get it, but um, it is like, yeah. I mean, in California has the least reliable grid and the highest prices in the country. Like, and I think it's at least partially a result of just kind of a lot of the, like this approach, like it's the, yeah. It's like not vertically integrated and it's not really a market. It's like kind of, that's just, it's very bureaucratically driven and it just, I don't think it works that well, like at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that point on equity is interesting too. Like mm-hmm. there's always this question about yeah, DERs and yeah, obviously like people with access to capital are more likely to get DERs than others. Right. But like, I always think of DERs as like, 
the thing, the emergent thing that responds to expensive and unreliable electricity. And like expensive and unreliable electricity generates a lot of inequality, right? Because like, as we all know, like low income people, like energy is a higher percentage of their like budget. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. so it, I think there's some framing things too here. The, uh, just the last thing is the cynical take just based on what you just said, you know, if DERs are an emergent response to basically inept bureaucracies or institutions or whatever that lead to higher rates, the cynical take on this is it's actually just a crackdown on the threat. Of, That's where I wanted to go next. Yeah. 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 Like, and it's the scarier thing to like, or like weirder thing to talk about, but like, yeah, if if there's precedent for like, I mean this word in its literal sense, like prejudicial energy rates. By that, I just mean like you're doing this, therefore you get this rate. That I, I don't mean it in any way otherwise. Like it does, it creates what I've been saying is like surface area for malfeasance. Like it right. it, it offers an avenue for folks you know, regulators or those attempting to capture their regulators to, to really like, you know, protect their interests, like tell people what they should be doing in their private Mm -hmm. lives. Um, And I don't know, I, I'm not saying that's necessarily going on here or in any other example, but like, I don't know if we want to create the pathway for that. It just seems like a, it's a weird door to open. Um, I'm not sure if I want to. So that's my second concern with, these like import rates changing. Yeah. It's not just that it like doesn't make sense and like nerds can argue about right. how rates should work. It's like it's opening a door that is like pretty messed up, I think. Right. Um, and, and it's not just about solar. It's or DERs even. It's like if you install a heat pump, is like the gas utility going to be like 50 bucks a month, pay up, sucker. Like it's it's just, I don't think that's like a precedent that makes any sense. Right. Well, and I, I can provide some like context on, you know, what I, you know, the, the cynical perspective here, which is, you know, I, I do think it's, it's kind of interesting just like at the, you know, even in a broader sense in America right now, like a lot of political lines are actually drawn on like whether or not you trust our institutions anymore. (laughs) Like it's less like left, right. than than we imagine. And within that I've seen, um, there's sort of like two core almost opposing ideas. One is that like, you know, the funny like meme ver- or maybe it's not funny or scary, whatever is like, there's people who are like, it's like George Soros and like a handful of other like globalist elites who like are actively subverting these institutions. Um, and then there's just like the more this distributed idea of like, you know, institutions, bureaucracies have this incentive to just perpetuate themselves. And so it's not any like one bad actor or even like anyone within that institution itself. It's just like, if you accept the premise that they want to continue in the form that they're in, which makes sense, it's actually kind of the, the like function of an institution and it works for a while until it doesn't, um, is like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I would probably fall into that latter camp is that just like, a lot of these institutions are just trying to continue business as usual as they have like since post-World War II, like since we built the grid originally, but there's new dynamics. Like there's the internet, there's DERs, there's like new technologies that 
maybe can't be absorbed into these institutional structures. And so it's not necessarily like a, you know, some fat cat utility like owner or, a, a, you know, walked into the CPUC and is like, you know, we need to stay in control. And so we're going to penalize solar customers. I don't mean it in that like conspiratorial mm -hmm. sense. I just mean like there is this action reaction idea of like rates are going up, grids getting less reliable, people start installing DERS. That puts even more pressure on this sort of like unwinding system that we're watching. And so the natural response is like, this is going to get really bad. Like maybe the utility death spiral does happen. So we just got to slap fees on all these people to like recover costs. And it's yeah. not that it makes sense. I'm just saying that it can be this sort of scary, like this is censorship or this is like a um, direct attack, if you want to call it that, on DERs without it necessarily having to be like, I'm, I'm not sitting here with like a tin hat of like, there's a, a room of utility people like planning this assault. There's a, it's just like, to Duncan, your point, there's a, a emergent reactionary mm -hmm. force on DERs, which is like the institution trying to like maintain its position, but maybe it can't. Like maybe we just really need to reform how we think about rate basing, how we think about the utilities role. Like oh, that's why I always go back to franchise rights. It's just like, we need to fundamentally rethink these institutions, I think, in order to make this work. Um, so and that's I a hard thing to do. So. I don't disagree with the like foundational premise. I think the historically the way these things have happened is very much right. Like a small question comes up and you focus on that topic. A question comes up and you focus on that topic. And what and originally when like solar was first a thing, there wasn't really a lot of other DERs. But now it's sort of like, okay, we've come to a point where there's enough topics and they're still all being dealt with individually. And so we just need like a more systems approach right. to thinking about like that is a, a much simpler way of saying what I said, which is like, <laughs> like, oh, solar customers. Oh, and then it's gonna be heat pumps, then it's gonna be EVs, and we just keep like and we are seeing that, right? Like because we have like the yeah. energy efficiency conversations, the solar and DG conversations, yeah. the EV conversations, they're all happening separately. And a lot of times they have separate people dealing with them across things. And so there is, I think, this right. Broader question that needs to come back. I think that's a little bit, you know, I'll say on the Duncan, I like hear your point on like the, creating the space for malfeasance. I wonder like to me, like inherently when you have a regulated entity, like that space is always going to kind of exist in whatever proceeding yeah. you're talking about. Cause even if it's a systems approach, right? Like the people are still commenting and getting everything in there. And so I don't, I don't know how you like get rid of that space. I think maybe it makes it a little better if you're treating things more equally. Um, if you're saying like, how do we solve this rate system in particular, but cost shifting as a question is going to always, there's always going to be different things because there's no, right. Cause there's no proper way to cost shift. Cause inherently like we're trying to decide, right. Like agriculture is important. We know they can't pay the rates. So like, how do we think about that? Um, you know, the same question comes up with EVs. Well, then it's going to depend on whether you're in a state where people think EV, you know, EVs are important and whether EVs are important is going to be like, are you a state where you care a lot about climate or not? And so it's <laughs> gets really complicated to figure out like, where is their malfeasance versus where are their policy goals and right. versus like, I don't know, the other sort of inherent things. 
Yeah, I mean, my my thought on that was less about like cost shifts and stuff, but more just like a very finely pointed thing on rates. I I just think other than broad rate classes, there should be one rate. (laughs) Resi, commercial, industrial, that's it. Like then we can add add stuff on top. We can, you know, incentivize things, penalize things, whatever. But like, I just think, you know, th- this is the most, uh, this is the most don't tread on me I get. Cause usually I'm not there, but like, <laughs> I just think like no energy regulator should be thinking about what I'm doing in my own house. Um, yeah. and I, I shouldn't be like treated differently than anyone else. Um, if, if the rates are, the rates are generating a cost shift, not me, right. Poor rate design is generating a cost shift. That's right. That's my yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think ultimately what I'm what I'm trying to get at is like, and maybe we all agree on this point, is like when you look at VDER and the avoided cost calculator, what we like about it is it's like, it's transparent. It's trying to get at the underlying system. It makes sense to a certain degree. There's things you can change here and there. Um, but it does create like somewhat of a leveling, level playing field for both, you know, as long as it's like technology agnostic and the parties whether you're a solar developer or retailer or whatever it is like participating. Um, but when you see things like the rate design, like these more just purely bureaucratically driven processes, Duncan, you say it creates more surface area for attack. And so like I, or malfeasance, um, all I want to do is like inject into the conversation, the threat of like, you can call it an attack, whether it's like, like, whatever the intention is. Um, and I feel the same way about what's going on in Texas, like with the LSEO obligation, like it's literally handing the market to Gen Taylors because they're like the big incumbent um, power structure. And I think part of the problem is, and why I often push back on this like big tent idea, like say like, oh, bring on GM, bring in, you know, bring in all the oil companies, like, it's like, we got to understand, like their incentives are not aligned. Like their incentives are different often than what we envision the future to be. That could be true of utilities as well. It can be true of like the regulators. It can be true of incumbent private, other private companies like retailers or gentailers. So I'm not saying like the utility is bad and the private company is good in, in any fashion. I'm, I'm suspicious of all large, powerful institutions today that have are in a position to resist what or or impede what we view as progress which is a lot more durs lower rates lower outages all all that good stuff so um i don't know i guess i just you know trying to clarify my my comments is just like i don't view it in like a conspiratorial sense but i do think it's okay at some point to call things like an an attack on on what we view like people's rights with DERs to be. Um, and, and that doesn't have anything to do with the motivation. And, and I'm very concerned in California as I am in Texas that like we're seeing in two different markets, two different like crackdowns on what we think the future could, could be and look like. Um, so how do we respond to that is the question I ultimately want to ask. Um, and like, so what do you guys think? Cause you can go and make your case like this logical case. You can show that the reasoning is inconsistent, but it may just not matter. Like no one may pay attention. 
because they're the they're in the seats of power and we're not. So so what do we do about it? Um, and I, I think ultimately that's that's the question that that matters. Yeah, I think well, one perspective regarding what do we do about it would be Sunrun's perspective. Uh, you know, they kind of released their comments on the proposed decision and said, you know, this violates federal law. <laughs> so like their, their perspective is basically like universally protect against this um, and then let state regulation kind of flow from there. Um, you know, their view is this, this violates this purpa for quarter 69. Um, so, I mean, that's an interesting way to see this, I think, which is like, you know, states can regulate energy how they want, but like FERC should be in the game to some extent and like guarantee certain things will be, you know, the case. Um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's going to be a huge one. I'm like curious because I know they talked about it violating, I think specifically PERPA. I'm curious like how FERC 2222 will get interpreted to see if there's like potential violations there, like what sort of like having access to markets means from like a getting penalized for being able to access those markets. Like if there's something that you could get out of that. Um, and then I also think maybe as someone who's uh, optimist about institutions, um, <laughs> think things like, like people, you know, responding to and, and filing comments and like thinking and, and sort of continuing to sort of push for what they think is right. I mean, like, yes, these are big bureaucratic institutions. There, there are ways for the public to participate. And so I think that component, which like, I know, you know, DR task force is trying to do more of is an important component because you need to like push yourself to be heard, to make sure that people understand these things. Cause fundamentally it is very different. It is very new. And like, it's a lot, it's a lot for people to learn. It's complicated. There aren't easy answers. Yeah. And so like you have, I think like, you know, it's sort of on everyone to make sure that like regulators understand what those distinctions are. Yeah. And like what compromises they're no, making. I, I mean, yeah. No, I agree. And I I mean, I think what we're kind of I guess what I'm ultimately saying is like my concern is is if you look at, you know, you take something like um you know, for political donations, treating corporations as individuals, which I feel is just like, even though I don't like know much about how that whole world works, it just feels like an insane idea to me because <laughs> like, they're, they're not individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and what's concerning to me, like more at large in the country is like how, um, I don't know, the courts seem to be siding with corporations in a lot of ways. Um, like, I think there's this failure of like, uh, you know, modern libertarianism, like a lot of these people end up just being like corporatists, like because, oh, private company, good government, bad. It's like, it's just not how it works at all. It's like what you have to think about is like more about like power dynamics, I guess. And so I guess to in response to like your guys points of like, you know, you work through the PUC and I have seen like. It is very interesting watching that process in Texas and how you can really through like these working groups slow down some of these more radical policies. And I think it works sometimes, but sometimes it won't. And like we, there are going to be things that happen that are like very discriminatory. Um, and 
you know, the, the only recourse then is like the courts and like, does something work its way up to the Supreme court? Like Duncan, to your point for quarter 2222, like does something just get established at the national level and this, like, you know, works its way down into the States from there. Um, I guess it's just the, the, the bet is there like, or the, the hope is that like the courts get it right. Like that's what we're like levered to ultimately. And based on the trajectory you've been seeing in the country of like how powerful these multinational corporations are getting and like how uh, even the courts are, are ruling in their favor in a lot of ways, sometimes like that's, that's a concern to me um, that maybe they won't get it right. Like that. I mean, that's, that's kind of it at the end of the day. Um, and so I don't know, I don't have like, that's, I guess that's, um, where I'm saying like in the next five to 10 years, this could be bumpy and, and ugly and things may go one way or the other. But what I am confident on like the 10 to 50 year horizon, like these technologies are just fundamentally better and it'll win out in some form or another over time. Um, but I just, I don't know, want to inject like a dose of reality or being sober about like the risks here. I'm not saying it's going to happen this way. I'm just like, I don't know. There's a lot of landmines here. And I think we need to be very um, methodical and like calculated in, in knowing that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's not, I don't know. Not everyone's just going to respond to reason and like, it, it doesn't have to go the right way. <laughs> There's a lot of risks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the risk point is fair. I mean, I think that's definitely fair because like, half the stuff the country benefits from in like, you know, whatever new energy regulation hasn't reached the other half of the country yet. Right. right. Like, it's, like it's, there's it's, definitely it's, risks. Right. Like look at the Southeast. Like, right. Yeah. There's real risks. And I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm pro institutions too, Colleen. I just, I think, uh, I think <laughs> I just, um, you know, there's, there's good institutions and, and bad ones and we need to be like, just, yeah. Mindful know, they, of it. You can't yeah, just assume that, yeah. They can't I think, just assume because they're an institution, they're acting on your behalf. I guess like, that's all I'm saying at the end of the day, whether that's the courts, the utility or a big private company. All right. Is that, I mean, you guys, was that a, you guys think I'm a nut or, I mean, are you generally like Duncan, you're kind of sitting quietly over there. Do you have a, no, I mean, I'm, I'm generally in agreement. Like that, that's why I don't know. I had this whole concern about the universality of rates. Like that's why. Right. Yeah. Right. They, right. I just think like there's no sense and we should close that door. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I just reduce the surface area of mouthpiece. Yeah. yeah like I, I, I don't want to like one. Like we can't eliminate the surface area, but we can make it smaller. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to wonder which institutions are, are good and which are bad or, or whatever, mm-hmm. like where the inertia is. It's just like, right. It, there should be rules. <laughs> And that's right. it, you know, yeah, right. like, right. Um, right? Yeah. like we, we have a constitution, we have a bill of rights, right? Like there are right. certain things that, you know, outside of enormous consensus, that's like nearly impossible. Like you, it's almost impossible to amend the constitution, right? There are things we believe are just like universally true. Um, that's, yep. that's the way I see this stuff. Um, but, you know, that's challenging, obviously. I mean, I think it's hard, right? We have like, it's not like when the internet came around, right? Like it's the, the grid is an old thing at this point. We have fundamentally new things happening on it. 
that are sort of being processed through existing frameworks and structures. It's not as if it's a brand new invention though, right? So right. I think it makes it really challenging um, to kind of like digest the context of the past, but then like also digest like predictions of the future and like come up with something that works. Right. Um, whereas, yeah, with like, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like when the internet came around, like the FCC was like, all right, blank sheet of paper, like how should this work? Right. That's not what we're dealing with here. Um, right. And yeah, I, I think it's super hard, but I agree with James ultimately. Like, I think we, we, we need to recognize there's inertia in the system um, and sort of just, just be honest about the dynamics that creates. Um, and, you know, per my view is like the systems near the point of radical change and yeah. Yep. Like we can deal with that as best we can deal with it, honestly, sincerely, or we can like squabble. Um, and I prefer the first because I, I just think yeah. this, this, it's complicated stuff and it's hard enough to get right if everybody's just trying to get it right. Um, so I don't know. That That's that's my view on this stuff. I think these little incremental like tweak it kind of changes are just a dead end. I, I don't I don't really see it happening yeah we don't want like nem yeah. seven through eight <laughs> over the next five years right because oh it also yeah. it just slows it down it makes the market like it makes the markets like confused about what's going to happen in the future when like you just keep sort of incrementally changing things you kind of got to be like what's right what yeah. are we going to do and sure you can have a transition period to it if we're going to do the nem seven eight thing i'm definitely going to do a career change and just become a consultant like I'm long billable hours. If that's, <laughs> that's what, I, yeah, exactly. That's the approach we're going. Yeah. I mean, I do think Vitor gets it right. Minus just the, uh, the energy and capacity pieces should settle through the ISO. Like that's the only change that needs to be made. And like, that's a great framework. You know, the Con Ed and the utilities are playing their role. Like new third parties are playing their roles and you know, it's, it's, it seems like the best way to get through the next like five to 10 years smoothly until on the other side of that, we're like, wow, we have tons of DERS now. Like what, what <laughs> happened? Like, do we need to make yeah. new changes? So it is like totally. the right amount of incremental change for now, I think. Yep. Yep. Totally agreed. All right. Well, I'm very interested to see to wrap this up, I guess. I'm very interested if the proposed decision does go forward as, as proposed, I mean, people are going to be really unhappy. Like if you remember like in 2016, when uh, it, Nevada basically killed net metering in like a very blunt way, was it Nevada? I think so. And there, it was, there were all these articles like Elon Musk versus Warren Buffett, like who's going to win, <laughs> you know, and like every solar company just left Nevada, which was like big news. But like, it's not like Nevada was a massive solar market. Like right. if, if every solar company leaves California, that's like insane. It's insane. It, that's like half of the solar company. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I, 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 I will say what's interesting, I guess, to go back to James's thoughts on like institutions and power and stuff. Like, I don't think the solar industry is small enough to just be like, well, got to pack up right. our bags. Like, right. There's yeah. going to be a gnarlier fight if this passes. Right. I don't. I, I don't know so. what venue totally. it will take place in, but it will be interesting. Yeah, you can't just lose California as a market, and especially because California also can't lose solar as a market because they have all these goals for solar construction, <laughs> right? Well, all yeah. these mandates. So it's like they're going to have to figure something out. 
I mean, it's just like these are big publicly traded companies now. Like they have yeah, they have right. global stakeholders now. That <laughs> and is, like the, that is the you know? self, that is the positive, right? Is like there is a lot of weight in not like there. I mean, I said like kind of in a way that you know the other institutions have a lot more power, but like solar and even EV companies like a Tesla, like they're obviously they have some weight to to move around. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays plays out. But they are the insurgents, you know, it's like not they haven't been around for a hundred years. Yeah. No, yeah. totally. Yeah. They're they're still definitely the insurgents. Um, I just think it's like they're not in like lay down and die mode anymore. No. Like there's yeah. gonna be some response yeah. that will be very interesting to, to see yeah. go down. Another great discussion from our task force leaders, Colleen, James, and Duncan. As always, please make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on our website, dertaskforce.com, and keep a lookout for our monthly meetups and other exciting things happening in the DirtTiff community, like an ever-growing job board, our famous swag, and plenty more coming in 2022. Talk and tweet to you all soon.